Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, is a lack of quality non-commissioned officers shaming the Russian army? You need people there who are trained. You need people there who, who absolutely 100% understand how the battlefield works. People are going to go down, so you haven't got anybody who's got any idea of the structure or how things work, then you're, you're in a lot of trouble. Protecting NATO's eastern flank, America's latest piece of tech. It can switch into an air-to-air mode. It's got an advanced radar up in the nose. It's got the AMRAAM missiles on there. And the final resting place for the RAF celebrity Chinook. When you're in Bravo November, you do feel like you're in a little flying shield. And actually, you kind of feel slightly invincible when you're in it, um, because you just know she's going to look after you. Well, let's start with the situation in Ukraine this week. Russia says it's scaling back its military operations around two Ukrainian cities. The Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, is very sceptical. They are still carrying on indiscriminately bombing civilian areas, striking targets way outside the Donbass. So their actions, as ever, don't match their words. Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark is with us. Uh, Michael, do you believe the Russians will really ease off? Uh, no, they're just reworking their battle plan. They they said they were uh, withdrawing, as it were, operations around Kiev because they can't get any further and they were being pushed back at Erpin um, uh, in particular and Butcher and around Hostomel. And so they, they're, they're rationalising the fact that they've pulled back some of their forces anyway to Belarus for rest and re-equipment. But, but part of their plan in any case was to build up more forces in the Donbass and these 10 uh, battalion task groups that they've they've created look as if most of them will be going to the Donbass. So there's a repositioning going on and the Russian statements are not in any in any case consistent with their actions because the bombing of Chernihiv has carried on uh, overnight. So I think everyone is saying the same thing. We'll judge Russian behaviour by what we see, not what they say. Well, since Russia invaded Ukraine at the beginning of the month, some people have been surprised at the slow progress of the Russian army. Various reasons have been suggested, including lack of fuel, low morale and a fierce resistance from Ukraine's fighters. But a more fundamental cause is also being discussed, the way the Russian army is structured. It doesn't have an equivalent to the non-commissioned officer corps. Rather, it relies heavily on conscripts who typically serve for just a year. NCOs in the British Army are often described as its backbone. Well, in a moment, we'll hear from someone who's been an NCO. But first, Michael, briefly, your thoughts on this. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the NCOs, the the Lance Corporals, Corporals, Sergeants, Sergeant Majors, they are the backbone of any army. That's absolutely right. And they're the people who drive uh, a platoon forward or get get a platoon moving. I mean, it's always said that, you know, the British Army follow their commissioned officers, but that's mainly out of curiosity. They follow their uh, their NCOs because they are their, their, their peers. They're the people who they work with. And the point about NCOs is that they do the drills and skills. They will make sure that you do your drills and skills and in combat drills and skills will keep you functioning as a soldier and they'll save your life and so when the sergeant says think of me as your mother there's a sort of truth in that because he won't come around and kiss you good night but he will make you like your mother do your drills and skills that will keep you alive and your sergeant will bring you all home at the end of it well phil campion was an nco in the army and is now an author and tv personality commissioned officers basically work underneath their superiors, their commissioned officers, and they are, for all intents and purposes, 
they are the they are the tip of the spear on the battlefield. You know, the lance corporals are administrating the, the, the sections and the section commanders are actually leading the sections into battle under the direction of the platoon commander. So the platoon commander will be working back to the to, to the to, to the company commander, etc. 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 But the real tip of the sword, the actual boots on the ground as it were would be, you know, the full screw and, and, and the lance jack who will be leading the men around the battlefield and, and, and cutting about. They're well trained. They, they, they're well trained. They, 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 they do some great courses for them. And yeah, they, they are, for all intents and purposes, they are what's on the ground. That's what you get. That's your, that's your end product. And do you think the lack of NCOs in the Russian army could be hampering their progress? I think a, a, a combination of two things. A lack of NCOs will obviously be hampering progress because they've got no direction at the very tip of the spear. So what do they do? Conscript soldiers as well are a massive problem for me. You don't get a shift out of, of, out of a press gang bang like you do someone who volunteers. The other thing that we're seeing here is they're up against, they're up against people that are in their backyard quite literally fighting for their lives. You know, they're absolutely, you know, I've been to the Ukraine recently, you know, in the last couple of weeks, and I've seen farmers in their fields digging in with pitchforks, you know, constructing bunkers in their gardens, defending them with sticks. Do you know what I mean? These people have prepared to fight to the death. Now, if these conscripts, some of them who probably didn't even know what they were getting themselves into, are coming up against people who are absolutely prepared to go to any length, tooth and nail. To, to, to win this thing, it's a very difficult proposition, isn't it? And you say you were in Ukraine recently. Where did you go? What were you doing? And how was it? We'll say I've got a bit of client confidence, confidentiality on this one, but I'll say it was humanitarian. And I literally went in. It was it was quite far west near Lviv. So not not in the, not in the heat of the action, really. But still, you know, coming through those borders, seeing people on the borders patrolling them, seeing farmers preparing their their, their, their selves for, for for invasion and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that, that, they're, the Ukrainian people are doing a huge a huge effort to stop this happening. Do you know what I mean? As a former NCO, do, do you think the non-commissioned officer is the backbone of the army? Some people describe them as being like a parent figure. Yeah, I think, you know, the platoon sergeant, the platoon sergeant's normally more of a sort of like parent figure. Your, 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 your full screws are like, are like the cousin that gets you in trouble. Do you know what I mean? He's, he's the one that grabs you by the scruff and says, come on, let's go. Right, we're doing this. Right, we're going that way. And then the platoon sergeant's like, okay, lads, right, is everybody okay? after it's happened up. They very much are an integral and massively important part in any front line. And how do you think the army would work without them? I don't think it would function properly at all. I, I, I seriously think that, you know, without the non-commissioned officers trained to the level that they are in the British army, we would have we would have constant fails. Do you know what I mean? But we don't. You know, we have we have some tremendous, you know, when you look at the likes of Brian Wood winning his MC and the way that he won it, you know, as an NCO at the time, I think he was a full screw. What a tremendous action that was, do you know what I mean? And that's proof of the pudding that these courses that these people go on, you know, they work. And our NCOs are, are, are second to none. Because if, if the platoon commander goes down, it's the NCO who has to step up. Is that part of the problem that's happening with the Russian army? There is no one to step up, is there? Do you know what I mean? So you've got, you've got people, it's all right saying step up, but if you haven't been trained, you don't know what to do. So yeah, you probably get the odd person to go, well, I think I know what I'm doing. But you need you need people there who are trained. You need people there who, who absolutely 100% understand how the battlefield works. People are going to go down. So if you lose a platoon commander and you haven't got anybody who's got any idea of the structure or how things work, then you're, you're in a lot of trouble quickly, aren't you? And how did you keep up soldiers' morale? Just by being me, I think. <laughs> I, I genuinely like a good laugh. Like, do you know what I mean? So I, look, I think, you know, keeping morale up 
is just being able to keep a brave face on things at all times, you know. And, and, and the last ethos of the regiment is, is humility and humour. Well, in a rare speech, Sir Jeremy Fleming, who heads the GCHQ intelligence agency, said he thinks President Putin has made a major miscalculation. We've seen Russian soldiers, short of weapons and morale, refusing to carry out orders, sabotaging their own equipment, and even accidentally shooting down their own aircraft. And even though we believe Putin's advisers are afraid to tell him the truth, What's going on and the extent of these misjudgments must be crystal clear to the regime. Well, Professor Chris Bellamy is a military analyst and Russian historian and joins us now. Um, Chris Bellamy, how much does the structure, the training and command of Russian land forces contribute to what was described there? The Russian army emerged out of the Soviet army, which was primarily a conscript army. Currently in Russia, men between the ages of 18 and 27 are obliged to do a year's military service. Uh, now they spend about two weeks, uh, sorry, two months doing basic training and then four to five months more of specialist training. Uh, for example, if you're in the artillery, you, you know, you become a a number one on, on a gun or whatever. So uh, by the time they're fully trained, uh, many of them then leave after a year. What appears to have been happening is that people have been called up as conscripts to do their year and then they can sign a contract for two years after two months. But it appears that some of them have been forced to sign contracts and then they, they can be sent to Ukraine and they disappear. And we've seen reports from Russian parents that their sons have just got, gone off the radar. So uh, the res result of this all is uh, A, people who don't want to be, be there are being forced to be there, which is never a, a good thing. And secondly, as we also heard earlier, uh, if the platoon commander, who's a, a, a lieutenant, is killed, there is nobody to step up. He doesn't have a, a platoon sergeant uh, or anything, anything like him. There are two aspects to this. The first is that the platoon commander doesn't have an effective deputy. And the second is that the, the officers, of whom there are about six in a company, uh, of about up to 200 men. Uh, the officers have to do everything. Not only are they interpreting the orders that have come down from above uh, and planning ahead, they are also making sure that people are getting fed, uh, that they haven't fallen asleep on guard, and all the, all the other things. So that's actually too much work for the the officers, the commissioned officers, to do. Russian commissioned officers are very well trained and very well educated. They do typically uh, three years or four years or in five years at a higher military school, uh, five, five years if you're an engineer, mm. for example. Uh, but they shouldn't be having to do all the basic housekeeping things mm. uh, and uh, other uh, lower level things that we rely on NCOs to do. It, it so does I, seem to be a, a massive oversight for the Russian army not to have an equivalent NCO corps. Why is that? Uh, they, they did look at it in, in, during the reforms in 2008, 
but they decided against it. What they're what are known as um, enlisted professionals, so they're contract soldiers uh, and senior NCOs are, are basically there as technical specialists to operate te uh, specialist uh, high-tech equipment. They're not there as leaders, and so that there's a huge gap there. Uh, now, there are two ways around this. One, you could have more officers, uh, but then that reduces the the role and the uh, the distinctive role of, of officer. Um, or you could create a, an NCO Corps. They have recently established uh, the Aerospace Command, Rostov-on-Don, has established a, an enlisted professional's school where they train to the equivalent of a, of a degree, uh, which which is appropriate mm. for aerospace, of course. Um, but that hasn't gone through into the troops on the ground in Ukraine. Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Michael, one difference between the Russian army and the Ukrainian one is that the, the Russian one is centralised, whereas the Ukrainian one is decentralised. What difference do you think that makes in this war? Oh, that, that's huge, because since 2014, when the Ukrainians have been taking Western help, it, they, they started from the ground up because 2014 basically destroyed them. And they've essentially adopted a Western military mindset, which is mission command, where the, 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 the commander creates the mission and everyone understands it and then from the bottom up people deliver it in their own best ways it's the it's the exact opposite to an over centralized army and so what we're looking at in the ukrainian army now though they, the project was only halfway through as it were when they had to go into battle uh, a month ago um, but that project is essentially to create a western style army which is a complete antithesis of the way the russians do everything which is top down centralized with a huge concentration on heavy firepower and so the Ukrainians have got the opposite of that. Chris Bellamy, you are Professor Emeritus of Maritime Security at the University of Greenwich. Um, how successfully is Russia conducting the war from the sea? I think the uh, maritime operations have been rather neglected in, in our coverage of, the, of this uh, war, um, partly because, of course, most people are on the ground and we, we get pictures from the ground. Um, the Russians have got six amphibious war warfare ships, Rapucha-class amphibious warfare, warfare ships, uh, in the in the Black Sea off um, Odessa, and uh, it's quite likely, I think, that they they will possibly have an amphibious assault of part of any attempt to take Odessa. Um, they have the uh, 810th uh, Guards Naval Infantry Brigade, and naval infantry, in contrast to the, well, I, we were talking about conscripts and unwilling contract soldiers, the naval infantry are uh, very professional, and they may be particularly valuable in, for example, um, taking the big commercial port at uh, Odessa. Uh, so don't don't forget the Navy. Professor Chris Bellamy, thank you so much for your thoughts today. Thank you for your time.
Now, why are the Russians repeatedly accused of poisoning? Former Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich is the latest alleged victim of a poison plot. Well, Vladimir Putin is accused of being behind many poisonings of those who oppose the Kremlin, including the use of the nerve agent Novichok. Hamish de Breton-Gordon is a chemical weapons expert. Uh, Hamish, um, why are there so many cases of alleged poisonings by Russia? Well, basically, because there have been quite a few cases. Uh, You've mentioned uh, Salisbury. We also had uh, Litvinenko back in 2006, poisoned with polonium-210, and Alex Navalny, uh, more recently, the opposition leader. So this does appear to be part of the Russian playbook to um, either terrify or take people out who oppose the, the Russian narrative at the time. And in terms of warfare, is poisoning effective or is it quite cumbersome or even old-fashioned? Well, probably all of the above. And uh, one of the challenges is always working out who is responsible for it. Um, And I think we've had a really difficult time over the last probably 10 years or so. Uh, Many people remember the massive chemical attack in Syria on the 21st of August 2013, where Assad killed up to 1,500 civilians using the nerve agent sarin. Uh, Unfortunately, um, although there was a red line imposed by President Obama, the then US president, um, that sort of disappeared uh, and the UK and the US decided not to punish Assad. And that sort of opened the gates uh, to every dictator, despot, rogue state and terror group that they could use these uh, chemical weapons and poisons Uh, with impunity. And they were tremendously successful in Syria. Um, And that, I think, is why uh, there is so much talk of the use of poisons and chemical weapons at the moment, and sadly now also in Ukraine. And and does the poisoning of individuals, does that constitute a chemical attack, a chemical weapons attack? Well, I think this, this is the really challenging area now with the Abramovich poisoning. The report published by the Wall Street Journal earlier this week, which which, uh, suggested that Abramovich and two Ukrainian negotiators were poisoned with a chemical weapon, I think has has blown this probably out of all proportions, um, because a lot of the Western leaders, including our own, have recently stated the use of chemical weapons in Ukraine would be beyond the pale and would mean that NATO would act. Saying that these people were poisoned with a chemical weapon without the evidence um, to back it up make, makes it incredibly difficult. And it's interesting that all sides are slightly raining back on it. Now, hopefully we will get the full evidence and it will make things clearer. But to say this was a chemical attack in the sort of guise of the Chemical Weapons Convention, I think is probably um, a little bit too far, uh, and we shouldn't probably go down that line. Anybody um, who is going to be involved in any face-to-face peace negotiations with Russia is bound to question their safety in terms of poisoning. What kind of protection can you take? Well, I think there's an awful lot you can do, and I'm sure, you know, hitherto, and remember this happened well over three weeks ago at the beginning of March, um, Uh, You know, we were still in in tremendously difficult times, but one would have thought that the security would have been as such to make sure this wouldn't happen. But, you know, this is almost an inconceivable incident. But but I'm I'm sure like your fellow guests, you know, I'm I'm I cease to be surprised of what's happening in Ukraine. There's almost no depths that people will will step to. 
So I think now that it's very clear that perhaps these negotiations are not as one would 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 expect or want from you know two two world nations that uh, negotiations in future will be done under much tighter and stricter security. Michael Clark, do you think there will be more cases of alleged poisonings in the current conflict? Well, like Hamish, I think, yeah, we have to be prepared for everything at the moment because this crisis has thrown us into Cold War II, whether we like it or not, it's just plunged us into it. And that means that there'll be a great deal more tension and distrust around in European capitals, wherever we interact with Russia. And the oligarchs are out there. They're in a, they are being chased down by the Russians and chased down by the West for their assets. I suspect we can expect more individual poisonings. And as Hamish said, I mean, if you look at what has been used, you know, biological, chemical and radiological elements have all been used in the past in these things. So that, that potentially we're at the edge of a very slippery slope here, which rightly politicians are nervous about. We don't want to go down that slope, but undoubtedly we are at the top of it at the moment. Michael Clark, stay with us. Hamish de Bretton Gordon, thank you very much for your time. Now, the U.S. Navy is deploying six Growler electronic warfare aircraft to Germany. The jets are designed to jam and destroy enemy air defense systems. The Pentagon is stressing the moves aimed at bolstering NATO's eastern flank and says the jets won't engage with Russian forces. Simon Newton reports. It's described as the world's most effective electronic attack aircraft able to find, jam and if needs be destroy enemy air defence radar systems in less than a minute. Now retired, Air Marshal Edward Stringer is a former Assistant Chief of the Defence Staff and commanded RAF operations over Libya and Afghanistan. Well the Growler is the most sophisticated of the series of aircraft that the US Air Force have built over the years for the suppression of enemy air defences or SEAD and the essential concept is you take a high performance aeroplane preferably one with two seats, and it gets involved in an almost cat-and-mouse game with surface-to-air missiles to fly just outside their range while tracking where they are using some very sophisticated centres to plot where the radars are on the ground. And then when the opportunity arises to perhaps use high-speed anti-radiation missiles, harm to uh, essentially fire a radar homing missile to take out the radar of the surface-to-air missile. The US Navy is sending six Growlers to Spangdalem Air Base in Germany. The Pentagon says they're being deployed to bolster NATO's eastern flank and won't be used against Russian forces invading Ukraine. The Growler, known as the EA-18G, is based on the US Navy's FA-18 Super Hornet. A quick way to tell the difference between the two is the wingtips. The Growler's fitted with large receiver pods which can detect and locate radar systems. Under the wings is the other part of the electronic attack system, the jamming pods. These send out a signal that blocks air defence radar and renders it useless. If that's not enough, then the Growler's also armed with anti-radar missiles. These can tell the difference between friendly and enemy radar systems, locking onto their radio signals and using their beam to guide the supersonic missile onto its target. Wayne Shaw is a retired lieutenant colonel in the US Air Force. He spent much of his career as an electronic countermeasures officer, or ECMO, and flew aboard the EA-6B Prowler, the predecessor to the Growler. He says it's a formidable aircraft. The great advance with the EA-18G Growler, even over the Prowler, is that it can self-defend. It also carries air-to-air -air missiles on it. So 
even though it's not ideal, if it got into a situation where it had to defend itself against some sort of red air threat, it can do that. It can switch into an air-to-air mode. It's got an advanced radar up in the nose. It's got the AMRAM missiles on there. And if it had to, it could it could momentarily put the electronic warfare mission to the side and engage that red air threat. Along with the Growlers, the US is sending 240 personnel to Germany, a mix of aircrew and maintenance staff. America now has more than 100,000 military personnel stationed in Europe. While NATO has so far declined President Zelensky's appeal for a no-fly zone, these powerful electronic warfare jets undoubtedly send a reminder to Moscow that the alliance does have the capability if it's pushed to act. Simon Newton reporting. Uh, Michael Clark, uh, what is the UK's equivalent capability? Oh, uh, I mean, we've got the, um, the Poseidon, uh, the uh, P-8s now. Uh, which are uh, maritime patrol aircraft. They were the uh, the, the ones that were uh, replacements for the Nimrod that was uh, scrapped uh, some years ago. And they're very capable, um, but we use them for the North Atlantic mainly. Um, and so we've got quite reasonable AWACS capabilities. The different, difference between us and America is that we don't have as many of them. We just don't have as many airframes. We've got now, I think it's uh, nine uh, Poseidons we've got now, eight or I think it's nine, based at Lossiemouth. Um, and they could do the same sort of job, but if the Americans have got Growler, then it's great to rely on that because that's the best system around, best in the world at the moment. Now, a celebrity Chinook has gone on display at the RAF Museum in Cosford after 40 years of service. Many regard Bravo November as the country's most famous helicopter. She was one of the first Chinooks to enter service when they were introduced into the force and was the only one to survive conflict in the Falklands and has served in every conflict since. Well, now the museum is asking anyone with memories from her past to come forward and share their stories. Hannah King has this special report. Seeing her today, so I'm getting quite emotional. It's like she's got here and she's finally able to rest and kind of relax a little bit. Liz McConaughey flew as crewman on Bravo November for 17 years. If it wasn't for Bravo November, there'd be you know so many trips stranded on the battlefield that never made it out alive. So um, there are people who owe their lives to Bravo November, no doubt. Absolutely. It sounds really silly, but the ramp of a Chinook to me is the most important important part of the aircraft. Yes, the cockpit gets you where you need to go and the pilots get you where you need to be, but if it wasn't for this ramp and all the people and the things that come over the ramp, the, the aircraft wouldn't have its stories. Bravo November entered service in 1982. She didn't have long to wait for her first deployment. Four Chinooks set sail for the Falklands aboard the Atlantic conveyor. As they approached, the aircraft were readied and Bravo November was the first to be tasked. No sooner had she left deck, the ship was struck by an Argentinian missile. It went down with the remaining three Chinooks on board. It was a dramatic start to Bravo November's 40-year career, which would see her serve in every conflict since. Four servicemen have been given the Distinguished Flying Cross whilst at her controls, one of whom was former squadron leader Steve Carr, awarded it for his actions in Iraq. The aircraft itself is, is just a fantastic aircraft. It, you know, it does what it says on the packet every single time. The, the answer's two Chinooks, now what's the question? Bravo November is just a particularly special one. There's little on the cars now to replace it, apart from newer Chinooks. It's powerful, it's strong, it's flexible, it will take damage and it will bring the guys home. The museum were delighted when the famous aircraft finally squeezed, quite literally, through their gates. Here's museum CEO Maggie Appleton and head of collections Dr Peter Johnston. 
This is probably the most exciting object we've ever taken into the collection. She's amazing. She's probably the most famous helicopter that RAS ever had. Yeah, there was a bit of a happy dance. There was a bit of cheering and fist pumping and these sorts of things as well. It's everything it allows us to do as a museum. You know, museums are about the stuff. People come to be inspired by the stuff, but they also come to hear the stories. And with, with 40 years, she's got a lot of wonderful stories to tell. You know, in the first instance, we're going to talk about the Falklands, but then, you know, we'll have an opportunity to talk about Iraq, Afghanistan, the Balkans, everything as, as we pivot towards looking in that, in that wider period of the, the history of the RAF in the last 40 years. She looks a bit, um, a bit stripped out, really, but um, it's nice to see that they haven't tarted her up, so to speak. She literally has still got scratches and marks everywhere, and I would expect no less of this aircraft because it literally has pulled its weight over the years and it has been the absolute workhorse of the fleet. When you're in Bravo November, you do feel like you're in a little flying shield and actually you kind of feel slightly invincible when you're in it um, because you just know she's going to look after you and that's what it's like it's like you know that the aircraft's going to look after you anybody out there who has their own story about working with Bravo November you know in the dust of Afghan or you know down in the Falklands in the Balkans or whatever you know get in touch with me I'd love to I'd love to hear it it's literally, it's literally what we do she's reached her forever home and is here for a good rest but we'll, we'll be working her really hard to carry on sharing those stories with our visitors for years, for decades to come. Hannah King, Forces News at RAF Cosford. Professor Michael Clark, what came through there is just like the sheer um, affection that people have for this aircraft. Yeah, most of us in the business of uh, defence analysis have been in Chinooks a few times and just about everybody in the force has been in, in a Chinook and you can, you can always tell when they fly over. I mean, in central London, they, you know, they fly along the Thames, they have to mm. take that line and you can hear it from miles out. You always know a Chinook because of the two blade, the two engines. It's, it's a very um, disharmonious noise, but it's almost like listening to a Lancaster go past. It's a Chinook and everybody looks, everybody looks. It's an iconic airframe. I love it, the flying shield. Professor Michael Clark, thank you so much for your time today and thank you to all of our guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chibot, thank you for joining me and goodbye. Goodbye.